Well, good evening, everyone. Feels like it's been a while since I've been here. Feels like it's been a while since I've preached somewhere other than at home. Um, this past year seems like mostly when I've preached, it's been to the home folks there at Strasburg. Um, and thought about it coming down the road this evening that I don't don't travel 81 as much as I used to don't travel south from Strasburg as much as I used to and I thought well I I don't know most of these people um, at Mabel and then I thought well I don't know that it's been long enough since I've been here that things could be a lot different um, but I'm blessed by the thought that we serve the same God, even if we weren't in the same district and the same conference and all of that. Um, our hearts beat together in, in a very uh, real way. And <clears throat> I don't, don't know where all the messages are going to go this week. Um, but I just, I think of how our connection as brothers and sisters in Christ is, um, well, the Bible would, would say that it's, it's even deeper than um, the, the connection of um, the water of the womb. Um, but our connection as, as children of God is even greater than any connection we have as brother, sister, husband, wife. Um, our connection to God is deepest, and then our connection to each other as children of God is next. Um, that's a powerful thing. I don't... Uh, brother Philip mentioned that he doesn't know... Um, the structure of the week, how often we'll have invitations, that sort of thing. At this point, I don't either. Um, I have some sense of, of direction for the week, but I also don't, don't feel like God has made it all clear yet. <clears throat> I do feel like, for the most part, I'm speaking to people who have made a commitment, and what we are going to do is together strive for uh, more depth, uh, more closeness um, and I I frequently get um, messages or comments after sermons about about the the practicality of the message um, which encourages me because I really don't want the day I uh, don't ever want to face the day where after a message someone comes up and says, well, that was a really impractical message, brother. Um, and so I feel like a lot of what we're going to talk about is um, shoe leather. It's about what we do and how we do it um, as we're walking through this life as children of a heavenly father. I plan to be here um, without my family this evening, tomorrow evening, um, and Thursday evening with the uh, school mornings the next morning, I figured it was probably best to not 
bring the children along each night, but they plan to be along with me Wednesday evening um, and then through the weekend. You can open your Bibles to Revelation chapter 2 to start the message for this evening. I struggled with, with our starting point for this week. I felt fairly torn between two passages that have been um, on my mind in the days leading up to this. And uh, this morning felt pretty settled then that, that this is where we're going to start. In Revelation 2, we have a picture of the church at Ephesus. We're going to read Revelation 2, starting at verse 1. To the angel of the church of Ephesus write, These things says he who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks in the midst of the seven golden lampstands. I know your works, your labor, your patience, and that you cannot bear those who are evil. And you have tested those who say they are apostles and are not and have found them liars. And you have persevered and have patience, and have labored for my name's sake, and have not become weary. Nevertheless, I have this against you, that you have left your first love. This idea of leaving your first love is something we've looked at uh, probably a number of times through our lives, um, in Sunday schools, and school lessons, um, you maybe even have heard messages preached about what it means to leave your first love. As I dug into this passage, one of the things that um, within the last couple years was, was made much more fresh for me, I tended to, to think only, or primarily at least, of leaving your first love as where you were in loving God and then moving on, a kind of a timeline thing. Um, but the word that was used here um, in Greek for your first love has more the idea of a chief love or the first of all love, a more of a um, above all else rather than before all else. And so this is, this is seeming to be more of a, a case of you've moved, not you've moved on from loving the thing you did originally, though it seems obvious that they had had it at one point, but more of a, you've stopped holding dear what is dearest. The King James translation of this passage says, I have somewhat against thee. In today's English, I have somewhat against that rendering. Um, the somewhat is in italics, and it's not there in the, in the Greek writing. The translators put it there in the English to make it flow better, work better, which is fine. But to my millennial ears, when I hear somewhat, I think kind of. And that's not what's being said here. What's being said here would be more something or this thing. I have this thing against you. Not I have, I have kind of something against you. It is I have something against you. This is not the church being told, you've got a lot going for you, but there's a little something wrong. This is God telling them, I have this against you. So, question, do you want God to have something against you? 
Now that may sound rhetorical, ha ha, the preacher's asking the question we all know the answer to to make his point. That's not what I'm doing. I'm, I'm asking you to stop thinking about whatever is rolling around in your mind. Um, don't, don't let yourself drift to tomorrow's to-do list or, or whatever is in your head competing with the message this evening. Quiet all those other voices and ask yourself truly and honestly, do I want God to have something against me? That leads immediately to more questions. For me, I start to then wonder what are the ramifications of God having something against me and what will cause God to have something against me? My focus this evening is on that second question. What will cause God to have something against me? You can turn to Matthew chapter 22. <clears throat> Matthew chapter 22. And we will start reading at verse 34. Matthew 22, verse 34. But when the Pharisees heard that he, Jesus, had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered together. Then one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question, testing him and saying, Teacher, what, which is the greatest commandment in the law? Jesus said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the first and great commandment. In Revelation 2, there was so much that the church at Ephesus was doing well but God had something against them. They had left their primary love. Here in Matthew 22, Jesus says the first and greatest commandment is to love God with all you've got. First and greatest. It comes before and above all else. Everything flows from it. Everything is affected by it. What is your first love? Now, people are passionate about a lot of things. And we could look around and say some people's first love is um, their favorite sport or their favorite team or their hobby. So-and-so's first love is fishing. So-and-so's first love is hunting. But we'd rarely be right when we, when we look at that. One's first love, in, in the sense we're talking about from, from this Revelation passage, one's first love affects everything they do and say and think. It, it permeates their life to the point that nothing is unaffected by that love. That is the biblical concept of the first love. It affects everything, and there is nothing in your life that is unaffected by it. Think of, of the idea of influence. It influences everything. Turn over to 2 Corinthians chapter 10. Second Corinthians chapter 10. We'll start reading at verse 3. For though we walk in the flesh, we do not war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty in God for pulling down strongholds, casting down arguments and every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God, 
bringing every thought into captivity to the obedience of Christ. In this passage, we have the knowledge of God in focus, but it, it holds true for the love of God. We use God's weapons to attack and tear down the strongholds and fortresses in our life that stand against God and our love for him. First uh, John 2.15 says, Do not love the world for the th- neither the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. The other things that would, would come into our life and, and start to build up structure there are the things that will, that will stand in the way of God's love. And we need God to permeate everything to be that. Our love for God and our relationship with God needs to be the thing. You know, the relationship's the vehicle. Our love for God needs to be the thing that permeates all of our life. It affects every little thing we do. Psalm 42, uh, Brother Philip read from this evening. We have that picture of the deer panting for water. And David says, that's how my soul pants for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God, he said. Galatians 2.20 has a description of someone whose first love is God. Paul says, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Sometimes we can decry the worldliness in our lives or in our churches or in Christianity as a whole in, in the Western world. The solution to worldliness is not, well, let's get less of the world in there. The solution to worldliness is to get more of God in there because there's not room for both. Let's turn back to the book of Matthew in chapter 28. We're thinking of the love of God as being our first love, being the thing that permeates our life and affects everything we do. In Matthew 28, verse 18, we have what we call the Great Commission. We'll read 18 through 20 here in Matthew 28. And Jesus came and spoke to them, saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you, And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Amen. That is a powerful set of verses. We could have probably a couple of messages unpacking them. I just, let's just take a a top level look at that. Condensing that, we would say, is go make disciples. That's kind of the the headline version of, of what's said in those verses. Go make disciples. Think for a moment of your vision of making a disciple. If 
if you were, were going into the wilds of New Guinea um, with your Bible and a backpack with some basic supplies and you, you were going in there to, to make disciples, you would have in your mind as you went in to try to, to bring together a, a group of Christians, bring together um, a whole new church that has none of the baggage of any church you've ever been in, none of the, none of the pros or cons of any group you've ever been a part of. And you go in there, you're going to have in your mind some minimums that you're going to hold up. The, the targets that you're not willing to, to leave for later after these people have grown. But there are going to be some basic targets of some minimum things that you would say are what a disciple of Jesus Christ does. And some, some minimum targets of things that a disciple of Jesus Christ doesn't do. There are going to be some things that are just... I have to make peace with using various terms sometimes. There, there are some things that are just table stakes. You, that you just can't even get started if you can't at least come to these points. Um, as a disciple of Jesus Christ. So think a little bit what in your mind those are. I've got my own ideas, but I've got my own baggage. So for you, think of what are those... What are those core things that if you were going into an unchurched, not exposed to the Bible people and try to, to bring them into discipleship, what are those bare minimum things that come to your mind as they, they need to grasp this about God and their life in relation to Him? Then, as you start to think of those things that you consider core and foundational and just table stakes. I want you to pivot now and think of what are the ultimate? When you think of the ultimate disciple of Jesus Christ, what are the characteristics in your head for that person? And I'm not saying you have an individual that comes to mind. Um, I'm not saying that, oh, now you're thinking of the Apostle Paul or Peter or Brother So-and-So or um, Brother Philip mentioned Brother Eli Yoder. Uh, I really appreciated Brother Eli. Um, he was a small man who spoke big words for God. Um, and and he's he's someone that I look forward to spending more time with again on the other side um, of this life. But you may, you may think of an individual or you may just have some ideas in your mind more, more abstract that maybe you feel like you haven't even seen in someone, but you feel like the ultimate disciple of Jesus Christ would have these characteristics. What are the things they do? What are the things they don't do? Ephesians 2 refers to us as um, the redeemed of God as his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works that God prepared us beforehand that we should walk in them. And in 2 Timothy 2, Paul says we are workmen. And I think of 
workmanship and how disciples are God's workmanship. Um, we are His workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works. And we are also workmen. So as you think of those things that were in your mind about these are the bare minimums of what a, uh, what a disciple of Jesus Christ looks like. And then as you think of those things, these are the, the picture of the ultimate disciple of Jesus Christ. If those things are the bare minimums for a disciple, here's a question for you. Are you attaining those? You're a workman and God's workmanship. The first person you're discipling is yourself. That is your responsibility. Even if there's someone there walking alongside you and, and helping disciple you, and, and I hope there is, though frankly I think a lot of American Christianity, that would be one of our weak points, um, discipling each other. But your, your primary, your very first effort into discipling goes into your own life. Are you attaining those bare minimum things you hold up in your mind as this is what a disciple of Jesus Christ is and does? Now, what about those ultimate disciple goals? Do you want to be a bare minimum disciple or do you want to be an ultimate disciple? Here's a little nugget of truth for you. There are no bare minimum disciples. This isn't like... If you're a soldier, to use one of Paul's um, illustrations for what it means to follow God and to be his disciple, if you're a soldier for God, you don't have the option of, well, I'm going to put my three, six, or nine years in and get out. Or I'm going to put my 20 years in until I get my retirement and get out. This is your life. You're in it for the long haul. This is it. This is everything. There is no bare minimum discipleship. Let's get it practical. What do you really love most? What are you seeking? And I'm, I'm not talking in the abstract, the philosophical sense here, as in, I am a seeker of truth, or I'm just looking for happiness. I hope you're a seeker of truth. I know you're a seeker of happiness. I'm asking down here on, on the gritty gravel path of life where you actually do things, what are you seeking? And there are other ways to phrase the question. What do you really want? What are you dreaming about having? What fuels your hope for the future? What's capturing your attention the most? What are you focusing your reading on? What are you searching the internet for? What are you spending your time and money on? What are you making plans to pursue? Or we could ask it in the reverse. What desired person or thing is fueling your depression, discouragement, cynicism? Because as much as you want it or him or her or whatever, it seems unattainable. When you find yourself discouraged and disappointed and just down in the dumps, what is it that put you there? What is the thing that made you feel 
grumpy. What are you seeking? Your answers will tell you what you love. Love always seeks. I read that a couple years ago and that has stuck with me. Love always seeks. It's the very nature of love to seek the thing that is loved. Whether that, that thing that is loved, the beloved, um, is a, uh, a human. You have Song of Solomon, um, especially in, in chapter 7, verse 10, you have the picture of love seeking the person that they love. Or money, 1 Timothy 6.10. Some otherworldly thing, 1 John 2.15. Or God, uh, Deuteronomy 4.29 and 6.5 would be good pictures of that. It is the very nature of love to seek the thing that is loved. We cannot help but seek what we love. And we cannot help but grow disillusioned or bitter or maybe even hopeless if we don't believe we can have what we love. There are a lot of people who have, have gone pretty much down into despair because they either knew or believed that they couldn't have what they loved. Pursuit is the mark of real passion. Um, that's why David wrote things like, uh, One thing have I asked of the Lord that I will seek after. Psalm 27. And, O oh God, you are my God, earnestly I seek you. In Psalm 63. When he composed these psalms, he was consumed with love for God, a desire for God. And love compelled him to seek what he loved. That's why Paul wrote things like, the love of Christ constrains us in 2 Corinthians 5. The word, the Greek word in uh, that verse, um, something like seneco, it's translated in um, the English Standard Version as controls us, and New King James as compels, and King James as constrains. It's interesting to look at, at how those words are used and, and where else they're used. And, and what Paul lays out there in 2 Corinthians, is the love of God urges and even, it urged and even forced him into action to pursue what had captured his heart. He didn't have the option of staying still. He was pushed, pulled, and everything toward God. He didn't have a choice. There was, there was a force working in his life that he could not resist because he loved God and it drew him and pushed him. Love controls, compels, constrains. Love pursues. Love must act because love and word only is no true love. True love always produces action. First uh, John 3.18 My little children, let us not love in word or in tongue, but in deed and in truth. Love, true love, always produces action. So, have we lost our first love? The first indicator that we've lost our passion for God, that He's no longer our, our primary or our, our preeminent love, the first indicator is not embracing false doctrine or falling into immorality or outright apostasy. 
In fact, we might even still be serving Christ and enduring hardship with a measure of faithfulness that most observers would commend. While, while Paul, I'm sorry, not Paul, when John um, wrote what he wrote by inspiration about the Ephesian Christians there in Revelation, those Christians were still toiling. If, if you stop before verse 4, it's a glowing endorsement of that church. They were toiling, patiently enduring evil adversity, but they were no longer burning with desire and therefore no longer earnestly seeking Christ. To the outside world, there was a lot to commend. They, they were patiently enduring tribulation. It seems like the siding, some of the window dressing was still there and looked pretty good. But they were no longer burning with desire. They were no longer earnestly seeking Christ. The love of Christ no longer controlled or constrained them. It is a serious problem since what we, what we love the most drives our pursuits. If Jesus is not what we love the most, we'll be spending our energy, our resources elsewhere. However orthodox, we may remain at what we say, what we hold to, the creeds we have, um, we can appear, uh, I use the word orthodox on purpose, but you could even say your conservatism, your practices, you can be doing all the right, well, okay, you can be doing the right things, there we go. You can be doing the right things, but without a love for Christ, you will be rotting from the inside out. So what are you really seeking? What we do when given the choice, what we choose to pursue, what we want to seek, are indicators of what have captured our affections. Is the love of Christ controlling compelling, constraining us, or is it something else? Are we serving Christ out of an affection for him that makes it hard not to, or out of a sort of weary, dreary obligation? I'll do what you ask me, God, because I know you're the ruler of the universe and you saved me and I really ought to do it. There are days that maybe we're in that spot. I was going to say maybe that's not all wrong. It's pretty wrong. Um, what I want to say there is that doesn't mean, well, since I'm not doing it out of affection, I'm not going to do it. Um, when you know to do right, you do it. But our problem is we can all too often have that not be the that's not the sleepy end of the day or end of the week. Everything has gone wrong and I don't feel affection for anything right now. And I know I need to do this thing and therefore I'm going to do it. Sometimes we hit those points. The problem is all too often that attitude then just starts to bleed out into our lives. And it just becomes I'm doing what I do out of duty, out of just kind of a weariness of this is what I need to do. Do we serve Christ 
out of an affection for him that makes it hard not to serve him. Do we no longer do the works of faith like we used to? Not because of the focus of our calling has changed, but because we just no longer have it in us like we used to. I just don't have in me today what I had in me 20 years ago, or put whatever time frame on there. In Revelation 2, Jesus called the Ephesians to repent. This is not merely a warning but it's gospel. It is the good news. The call to repent there in Revelation 2 to that Ephesian church was not just a warning, but it was also the good news of Jesus Christ. Because repentance is an escape from the bondage of sin, whatever it is. The very fact that repentance is possible because of what Jesus has done for us on the cross that is the gospel. That is the good news. There is no question of whether we will seek what we love. So my question for you this evening is, what are you really seeking? Our works, our lives, they are whistleblowers because they tell us what we love. They point to the truth. And if we do not love what we ought, God has provided a way to escape from bondage and return to joy. That is repentance. That is gospel. Deuteronomy 4.29 says, But from there you will seek the Lord your God, and you will find him if you seek him with all your heart and with all your soul. God is there. The author G.K. Chesterton wrote this, The moment we care for anything deeply, the world, that is, all the other miscellaneous interests, becomes our enemy. The moment you love anything, the world becomes your foe. His point being that when you truly, deeply love something, anything that isn't that is... Somewhere on the scale of an annoyance to an abomination to you. Because it's, it's getting in the way. Because what you love is this. And this thing over here isn't that. And so therefore I don't like it. The world tempts us daily to leave greater loves. The love of God. The love of our brothers and sisters. The world tempts us daily to leave those greater loves for lesser lusts. Chesterton also said to love a thing without wishing to fight for it is not love at all it is lust love is active lust is passive um, a man who has stopped fighting for his marriage will not fight against the lure of adulterous flirting because he's, he's driven by the, the passive, consuming nature of lust, but not, not an earnest passion for love. Lust is a passiveness. It's, it's consumption. It's we want to consume something. Love is active. It involves what we do. 
which means that true love must be fought for. That's why to love the world is to lose the love of God, because the love of the world simply falls into lust very quickly. It is simply, I want to consume the things that I feel like having. It's a horrible trade, but frankly, we do it all the time. 1 John 2, 15 and 16, Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life is not of the Father, but is of the world. Misdirected love is the root cause of worldliness. Worldliness, it, it drains the sap from our greatest love until we just have a dried up branch. In the 1600s, there was a young Scottish minister named Henry Scougal, and he wrote to a friend, the worth and excellency of a soul is to be measured by the object of its love. Pleasures never lie. We can fool ourselves and others in many ways, but pleasure is the whistleblower um, of the heart. The author John Piper says, pleasure is the measure of our treasure. I think that's true. The things I find pleasure in reveal where my heart is, where my love is, where my affections are. We know what we truly treasure is what we truly love because Jesus said, where your treasure is there, your heart will be also. There's a book I really enjoyed called The Christian Atheist. Um, I have threatened to use uh, his chapter headings at least as a sermon outline or a series of sermons. Um, and I have actually preached two Christian atheist messages. I don't know if either of those will come up this week or not. Um, but the, the book is The Christian Atheist, When You Believe in God But Live As If He Doesn't Exist. And the author posits that if that's who you are, then you're just simply a Christian atheist. You believe in God, but you live like he doesn't exist. And two of the chapters that, that I thought of with with this idea of God being our primary, our preeminent, our first love. He has a chapter, when you believe in God but don't really know him. That's the first chapter of the book, actually. And then he also has a chapter, when you believe in God but pursue happiness at any cost. Are we Christian atheists today? Do we believe in God but not love him? But do, do, do we believe in God but pursue our happiness outside of him? God told those Ephesian Christians, I have something against you. You have left your first love. Love is active. Lust is passive. True love must be fought for. Do you love or do you lust? As the deer pants for the water brook, so pants my soul for you, O God. 
my soul thirsts for God, for the living God. What's your first love? What is the thing in your life that affects everything you do? If it's not God, you have a warning and the gospel. Repent. Turn to God. Turn away from your sin. Turn to Him. I went a little long, so maybe I won't ask for a song. Thank you for your time and attention. If you find your love for God is lacking, it is not the primary thing in your life. It is not the thing that affects everything else. If you find there's a part of your life that is not touched and affected by the love of God, there's no one else who can fix that for you. God won't force it on you. God won't force himself on you to that point. Your pastor, your brother, your sister, your husband, your wife, they can't fix it for you. That comes down to you getting a glimpse of the God who made you and saved you and responding to him. And that's something that we do over and over again and again. May God bless you. There's, there's nothing and no one more lovely than God. Thank you again for your time and your attention. Let's stand for a closing prayer.